Coming up on today's show, Travis Taves used to be finance minister in Jason Kenney's government. Now he's a candidate for leadership of the UCP. We will chat with him. Does Alberta need a sales tax? Is it time to finally take the leap? And do we need to be more imaginative when it comes to nuclear catastrophe? So we have eight so far in the race to become leader of the UCP. Um, could be nine. We're still waiting to hear what we hear from Michelle Rample Garner. How many actually are in the race at the end of this is another question as well, because you probably heard the story about how much it costs to be a candidate in this race. Basically, it comes down to about $175,000, 25 of which uh, is in the form of a good behavior deposit. But I mean, the bar is pretty high, one hundred and fifty k. Uh, just to get in. And of course, the leader will be elected this fall. Um, One of the candidates um, is Travis Taves, former finance minister uh, in the Jason Kenney government right from the beginning. Um, And uh, he's jumped in. He is running for leadership. And uh, Travis Taves joins us now. So, um, Mr. Taves, first of all, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate your time. Oh, my pleasure, Shay. Um, you know, when you think of prominent positions within a government, Minister of Finance is, is right up at the top of that list, of course. So you spent years as the finance minister in Jason Kenney's government. He was forced from leadership. You know, he had 51.4% of support within the party. What makes you different? Why are, I, I would assume you're probably seen as the closest to Kenney and the candidate so far. So how do you differentiate your potential leadership from his? Sure, that's, that's a great question, Shay. You know, I, I, I would start with perhaps, um, you know, what, what we align on, because I think that's also important. Um, Premier Kenny and, uh, and myself, we, we both, you know, align on a real commitment to core conservative values. And, and I believe it was, you know, that alignment that was instrumental in, in uh, you know, working together to, to really fundamentally bring the changes, particularly economically and fiscally to this province. And, and I think those changes have been extremely positive uh, for Albertans today and in the future. Where, where we differ uh, is on our background uh, and life experience and approach. As, as you know, I've been in the private sector all of my life, right until 2019. In fact, never even aspired to public office until, you know, probably uh, very admittedly late 2018, where, of course, the premier has been, been a career politician. Well, I'm comfortable in, in downtown Edmonton or Calgary or, or, or even uh, t- Toronto or New York, just with my professional background. My, my roots are deeply planted in rural Alberta. And the, the premier, of course, is, would be considered an urbanite. And, and, and again, that's um, not a criticism either way. That's just a point of differentiation. We, we, are, you know, we have very different background and uh, very different life experience, and that will result in a, a different approach and tone and leadership style. Uh, I want to talk to you about what we've seen so far on the campaign trail, and we're not seeing a lot in terms of specifics. What, what it is so far is all about, kind of interesting to me, because Jason Kenney's campaign was fighting for Alberta, fighting back against Ottawa, and he's being criticized for not doing enough of that, even though he did fight a lot of those battles. I mean, we've got some of your opposition candidates or opponents in this leadership race talking about Alberta autonomy, Alberta sovereignty, provincial police forces, really sort of re-examining Alberta's role within Confederacy. Where do you come down on Alberta's relationship with Ottawa? Are you on board with sovereignty and freedom and autonomy movements, or is there a different approach you take? Well, well, look, Shay, I'm, I'm a lifelong Albertan, and I've, you know, I've seen Alberta's, witnessed Alberta's 
incredible fiscal contribution to this nation. It's it's been outsized. We've, as you know, we've been the wealth creation engine of the nation for decades and decades. And when I take a look at the last, perhaps especially ten years or so, in this country, Alberta's really not had a fair deal in Confederation. You know, we, I, again, we've been. Um, I believe Albertans are, are fundamentally generous, and we've been okay to uh, to share our wealth, certainly with other uh, regions of the country where where they struggle economically. And of course, that's done in a multitude of ways. But when we see opposition to uh, critical infrastructure, for instance, that's necessary to continue to be the wealth creation engine of the nation, that becomes untenable. And so I, I too, really believe that we need to improve Alberta's position within this confederation. And Shay, that will not only be good for Alberta, that will be good for the nation. I believe it's essential for Canada, uh, for Alberta to be strong. So uh, again, we have to stand up for the for the best interests of Albertans, and I believe that's fundamental. It's how we do it. I think that's that's critically important. Look, my style is not to overpromise and underdeliver. I believe our relationship with Ottawa needs to be strategic as opposed to full of uh, political rhetoric. How far does it go? On Thursday, you are listed as confirmed for a uh, leadership panel being put on by the Free Alberta Strategy Group. Uh, The Free Alberta Strategy talks about sovereignty, an end to equalization, um, refusing to enforce some federal laws that they don't like, bringing in a provincial police force, bringing in a provincial banking act, all the usual points, which are, I mean, it's not separation, but it's pretty damn close um, how far down that road do you go? Do you agree with just refusing to enforce federal laws, ending equalization, all these sorts of talking points? You, you know, th- there's a number of the objectives laid out in that strategy that 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 I would generally agree with. Uh, that you know, in terms of you know additional autonomy for the province of Alberta, in terms of um, you know Albert Albertans setting their own trajectory. Uh, I'm all about that, and again, so so on a number of those initiatives, I would I, I would align with, you know, it's it's how we get there that's important, and I believe fundamentally that to ultimately strengthen Alberta's position, which again I believe strengthens Canada's position. Um, we need to be strategic, very strategic. Look, I I believe there's great promise uh, and potential in an in, in Alberta pension plan. I think that it's um, worthy to consider uh, how well we might be served by an Alberta police force. There are some fundamental changes that must take place to ensure that equalization is fair for all provinces in this confederation. There's some essential changes to the fiscal stabilization program that need to take place. We've made a little bit of mileage on that program by the federal government lifting the caps from 60 to $170 per person those caps need to be removed, and I could go on. There's much work we have to do to position Alberta to be stronger within this confederation, but it's how we do it that's important. Um, the division within the party, I think, you know, the discussion around uh, vaccine mandates has been part of it. There's definitely a fracture, I think, where, you know, you've got two different, at least two different positions within the UCP. How do you reconcile that gap, which I think has gotten quite wide? Um, you've got people who feel very strongly one way or the other. How do you bring them together around the various issues that have them upset? 
Well, well, Shay, as I travel around the province, and and certainly my own community is no exception, what grieves me the most, you know, following the pandemic is the division we see in our communities and, you know, businesses, even even in families. That That is most grievous, and certainly within our political movement, the conservative movement, which I might add is a big tent conservative movement, very diverse, and and I believe stronger because of that diversity. Right, right now, of course, we we fa- we do face um, you know some 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 fracture. I'm hopeful that uh, that we can come together again, united, uniting again uh, uh, again around the principles, fundamental values that we united around in 2019. I think that I believe that's mission critical, not only for this conservative movement, but for the province. And, and as I travel around and talk about the importance of unity, talk, talk about, again, the importance of uniting around those values that we agree on, as opposed to focusing on the division that's so prevalent in, uh, you know, right across our communities, mm-hmm. I, I see nods. I see nods from those Albertans in our movement that would reflect, you know, various positions across the spectrum. So I'm encouraged with that. Uh, last one, and I'll let you go. And I do appreciate your time. We're speaking with Travis Taves, leadership candidate for the UCP in Alberta. This weekend, we're told there'll be another freedom convoy in Ottawa. And that's been something where conservative politicians have been on one side or the other or tried to thread the needle. What's your take on that? Do we need another freedom convoy in Ottawa this weekend? A lot of Albertans will be there and will be supporting it. You know, I love it when Albertans stand up for the principle of freedom and liberty. I love it. That's what define us, defines us as a province in so many ways. I believe it's holding that principle in the highest regard is uh, in, in lar- a large part what has really positioned this province for such prosperity, opportunity, and growth. So, uh, again, fundamentally, governments meet, need to defend uh, the right of individuals, of citizens, to uh, peacefully and legally uh, protest, and 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 in this case, protest in the defense of freedom. I think there's a distinction, a clear distinction, between uh, protesting legally and peacefully, and illegal blockades. And and that's where I want to draw a point of distinction. I think that's an important distinction. Again, I'm I'm very much in you know, very much in favor of of ensuring that all Albertans and Canadians, for that matter, have the opportunity to express themselves in peaceful, law-abiding protest. But when it comes to illegal blockades of critical infrastructure, that's unacceptable. And so, you know, my, my hope and, and belief would be that, uh, that Albertans that are joining this, uh, this Freedom Rally would do it in a peaceful, law-abiding way, making their point on the importance of defending freedom, not only in Alberta, but but right across this nation. Mr. Taves, we are out of time, but I appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jay. It's been a pleasure. That is Travis Taves, former finance minister uh, in the Alberta government and current UCP leadership candidate. Talking about something that comes up quite regularly, as a matter of fact, and um, it, it never seems to take hold. Um, in fact, it gets shot down pretty quickly in a lot of instances, but have times changed? We're going to be talking about a sales tax in the province of Alberta. As you know, we're the only jurisdiction in the country to not have one. We're quite fiercely proud of that fact, as a matter of fact. And um, it's 
it's been something that's been defended. It's been called a political suicide tax in the province of Alberta instead of a, a PST uh, as a provincial sales tax. It's a uh, political suicide tax. But the argument, of course, has always been to stable out, stabilize the boom-bust cycle that Alberta is continually riding the roller coaster of. So where are we? There's a new book coming out. It's a book actually uh, featuring uh, viewpoints from a number of different Albertans, politicians, uh, scholars, public servants, all kinds of people coming together to make the case for why a sales tax might be just what Alberta needs. And to uh, walk us through the argument, we have Bob Aska joining us, who is a research fellow, the Parkland Institute, and also a contributor and editor to the book, which is called A Sales Tax for Alberta, Why and How. Bob, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate you joining us today. Thanks a lot, Shay. This book, okay, first of all, let's describe what we're talking about. It, it, it's a collection, right? It, it, there's a bunch of different contributors to this. Yes, we, we do uh, have uh, views from several economists that are, that are well-known in the province, Ken McKenzie, Mel McMillan, or Getty Ferretti. Uh, Graham Thompson weighs in on the political side of the debate. Uh, some political scientists, Elizabeth Smythe and I, and uh, a very interesting paper by Ian Glasper, who is the former CFO of Service Credit Union, about how you might operationalize the sales tax. And it's it's uh, it's all making a case for a sales tax, right? Correct. Correct. The timing is interesting because, as you know, this conversation comes and goes and, and it's sort of you can track it during boom and bust cycles within uh, the oil and gas sector. Right now, this province, once again, a wash yeah. in cash, huge influx in revenue. Um, so the timing of a sales tax, how does that affect how Albertans perceive even the thought of it? Well, that's a very good point, Shay. Uh, right now, with with as you say, the province wash in cash, it uh, it's really what to do with the windfall. But but it it's also a time where Albertans uh, and and policymakers and politicians should be thinking about the next downturn and what do we do there, and and what we what the book shows quite definitively is that really since the um, post-war boom, Leduc and when oil was discovered, um, Albertans have only been paying, say, 70 to 90 percent of the uh, cost of public services. And politicians really have been, um, you know, avoiding that, that whole issue about the fact that the oil industry is, contributing so much, but as the book shows, um, oil revenues are incredibly volatile. So we're within two years, the space of two years, royalties are going to like from three billion to 20 some billion. And, and so it makes budgeting very, very difficult. And, and, and the cost of funding public services, which grow basically at inflation and population growth, um, we we see um, historically, you know, every downturn there's a cut in public services, and and that's one of the dilemmas we talk about in the book: the fiscal dilemma of Albertans are used to good public services and infrastructure, but they don't want to pay for it, <laughs> and 
you know, he, the book goes into the history of what we call Alberta exceptionalism, and which is that, you know, right from the get-go of the province, they, it's been a very optimistic economy that thinks that the future will pay for itself. But it's all dependent on whether it was wheat in the 30s or whether it's oil and gas uh, in the last half century. And now is a good time to have that discussion for several reasons. One, because it just reminds people that this, or it should remind people that the windfall will be uh, short and brief and will go away. Secondly, we have an important leadership campaign uh, with the UCP. And third, coming up in May 2023 or before, there's going to be a provincial election. And, And the point that we're trying to make and with this book is is let's have a conversation. What what are we scared about? But but politicians historically just do not want to talk about it. Well, you're right. I mean, as I said earlier, it's a provincial sales tax elsewhere. It's a political suicide tax in Alberta. At least that's what we've called it. And I, I can tell you, just taking a look at the text line here, I mean, for example, anyone pushing a sales tax is quite frankly lazy and not serious about any concrete solutions for getting spending under control. We pay enough taxes. Have we moved yeah. at all from the political suicide tax mindset? Now, I mean, our text line obviously doesn't reflect all Albertans, but there's that sentiment yeah. out there, Bob. Oh, absolutely. And and in interviews that I did with the book, uh, there's this, uh, several people that express the fact that, you know, taxes are too high, although Alberta's tax advantage is like 12 or 14 billion, that, you know, even with a 3% sales tax, we'd be by far the lowest tax province in the country. So it, it's a very emotional subject. Um, and, and it, it really depends on your your viewpoint of provincial finances. Uh, right now, things are good, but if you want a fiscally sustainable system, you need to look at having stable sources of revenue. And the chapter by Ferretti is is very good because it just compares the volatility of um, of sales tax with personal tax and corporate income tax, uh, and and they're they're very different. I mean, the sales tax is very stable, so you can count on it. But 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 no, I mean the choices has always been this um, uh, yes or no, black and white, no tax, tax, and and no you know debate or discussion about the wisdom of having blended taxes um, that that uh, will stabilize the situation so we don't go through these boom busts of cuts to public services. Bob, and this might come off as a criticism, and I, I guess maybe in a sense it is. This is a book, as you say, written by scholars, former politicians, economists, some journalists are involved. Um, that's a different... I mean, how do you translate that to and build support among run-of-the-mill, average, everyday Albertans who who don't share the same viewpoint. I mean, I know there's that consensus in in some circles, but I don't know if it translates to your average voter. Yeah. No, I I mean, you ask an economist, and basically 100% would say we need a sales tax. But that that is not the world. 
so that the how of the sales tax is really to to encourage whoever wins the next election really to have a fiscal review commission look at the big picture, not just the sales tax and revenue, but spending. And and yes, people are concerned that governments spend too much money and waste and so on. But but we need to look um, you know forward for the next uh, decades to. Um, and, and, and look back at history and learn from history about whether this is the kind of, of, of world and public financing we wish to do. And, you know, one of the recommendations, and maybe a little naive, is to have a commission that invites not only experts but the general public into the conversation, like the conversation we're having today on Talk Back Radio, where, where people can, can, learn what the basic facts are. And I think, and again, this may be totally naive, but I think if people realize that since 1965, the government of Alberta has not run a surplus unless you add resource revenue. So all those surpluses that we brag about, it's all about oil and gas. And and part of the problem that the book points out is, and again, this is controversial, is climate change. And, you know, are we going to see oil sands bitumen producing three or four million barrels uh, five or ten years from now? Right, yeah. That is an open question that is uncomfortable, and, and so is the sales tax. But we need to have these discussions and we need to have, I, I guess I'm saying, politicians that are courageous enough to frame a broad conversation. Yeah, we need to talk about spending and health care, but, but we also need to talk about how do we finance it. Have you talked at all, does the book deal at all with um, how this, okay, let's say we actually have a government that wins the day and says we're going to do this. In my thinking, the very next election would be on the future of the provincial sales tax, and there would be a very strong opposition with a good chance of winning based solely on saying, we'll get rid of the provincial sales tax, which would completely undo. I think it needs to have, it needs to set roots. If it's going to be successful, it can't happen in one term. Does this discuss how you can sort of make it have more political lifetime to it? Well, I mean, a lot of the conventional wisdom is that you you get a majority government and you bring it in the first year and and that's um, and and then that that's settled. Um, but but obviously there's an election four years and you get punished for it, and the party opportunistically that gets in basically says we'll get rid of the tax. Yeah. Um, so no, the book doesn't doesn't really deal with that. Um, longitudinal uh, political aspect. Um, the book does deal with some of the elections, Ralph Klein and, and Lawrence Decorah in 93, where, you know, Klein was quite uh, unequivocal about a sales tax. Uh, you know, even though there were people around that time talking about it. And uh, Graham Thompson's chapter is very good because it, it mentions uh, a number of... Uh, PC finance ministers that that mused about a sales tax, 
and of course were slapped down by their premiers. We just can't talk about it. So uh, I think it's fair to say that I'm not overly optimistic that the issue, the two words, will be raised in either the UCP campaign or the uh, provincial election campaign next year. But I, I am hopeful that we'll, we'll have the book will spur at least people that are interested and, and have the time to uh, get up to speed about the province's finances to to think about it and discuss it and share it with friends. And I mean, you never know. How can people get their hands on this book if they want to learn more, Bob? Yeah, if you go to your favorite book vendor, uh, that would be uh, one source where you can uh, pick up your book. And uh, there's also Athabasca University Press. And you can look at, you can get free downloads of the book. So you can sample the book as well. Bob, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining us today. Okay, I'm interested in your uh, follow-up after 10. Absolutely, you bet. Thanks very much, Bob. Okay, bye. That is Bob Aska, who is a research fellow at the Parkland Institute and editor of the book, A Sales Tax for Alberta, Why and How. Kind of an interesting, when you think about what's going on with the situation in Ukraine, it's now been going on more than three months. Um, And, you know, for a while, it was something that we talked about each and every day uh, at length. We don't do that as much anymore. And I guess, unfortunately, that's just sort of the way the news cycle works, right? Things come and things go. And um, at a time, as we were talking about this, there was all kinds of debate and discussion around NATO getting involved. How much should they get involved? Can they get involved? And the threat always was, well, that's World War III and nuclear Armageddon. We can't do it. We can't risk it. That's something we never want to do. Um, And we don't talk about that as much as we did, and maybe we should be, according to our next guest. Mark Kingwell is a professor of philosophy at the University of Toronto, whose latest books are on Risk, the Ethics of Architecture, and the Adventurer's Glossary. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate your time today. Thank you, Shay. Good to be with you. Yeah, we're going to have a conversation here about, you know what, we don't talk about, you know, the possible, I mean, however slim you want to say it is, that's fine, but the possibility of a uh, nuclear escalation with what's happening in Eastern Europe and and the point that, you know what, maybe we should, maybe we should think a little bit more about the, you know, the worst case scenario. Yeah, I mean, the way you described it, I think, is is extremely apt. We have two blind spots right now uh, with respect to uh, Eastern Europe. Uh, the first is the most obvious one in some ways, the fact that the news cycle, as you say, and just people's attention spans have uh, flagged in this longest ground war uh, for decades. And uh, there's still news reporting, and uh, perhaps the worst is yet to come. This is going to be a grind if mm-hmm. it stays in the current so-called conventional warfare uh, setting. But the other blind spot is is the bigger one, to my mind, because uh, it's almost total occlusion with respect to the the nuclear option. And though there was some talk of it yep. uh, early on, because, of course, Russia does have a significant stockpile. It's the second largest stockpile of nuclear warheads in the world after the United States. Uh, we actually don't know how many China has. But um, anyway, Russia is a significant nuclear threat. And you have a, a, an unstable leader, I, I think that's fair to say, uh, whose expansionist policies 
to the countries nearby are fairly obvious. Uh, and will he stop at nothing? Uh, that's the, the big question. And I think what's fascinating to me as someone of a certain age is that we ha- we're not talking about that second issue really at all. Uh, there are a few people. Uh, my, my article in The Globe last Saturday was also alongside one by the Nobel Prize winner, John Polanyi, who's been a, a watcher of nuclear weapons proliferation for decades. And uh, I know John personally a little, and uh, he's been very concerned about this. Uh, and the so-called doomsday clock, which is kept by the Bulletin of, the, of Atomic Scientists, it now stands at 90 seconds to midnight, and midnight is doomsday. Uh, now, to, to be uh, completely accurate, that clock is measuring every kind of doomsday scenario, sure, yeah. not just nuclear. So there's, there, there are so many things to be worried about that it's not surprising that we find it hard to, to keep in mind this kind of shadowy threat that's lying in bunkers and uh, nuclear submarines uh, under the ocean. You know, in reading your piece on Saturday, uh, part, I thought to myself, well, what we're talking about here is scaremongering. But, you know, I don't say that in a bad way necessarily, Mark, because in, in some instances you can call it scaremongering if you want, or in other ways it's just sort of having a, a, a frank discussion about the risks that are present. And, you know, yeah, yeah it's scary. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, you mentioned my little book on risk, and one of the things I talk about in there is the difference between scaremongering, which I take to be uh, arousing anxiety and fear when there's no no uh, objective basis for it. So scaring the children, in other words. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when there's an objective basis for it, it's, it's, it's perfectly rational to be afraid <laughs> and risk-averse. And uh, we're not great at calculating risk, uh, we humans. That's, that's one of the most important points about risk that we, one should come back to. So when it recedes from view, it uh, becomes taken for granted. It's, it requires an effort of imagination to, to bring that threat back into consciousness. And this is, this is an interesting time, because I, I was recalling in the piece being an undergraduate in the 1980s, and all we talked about was nuclear ar- Armageddon. It, it seemed like it was going to happen next week, you know. Right. And uh, we would make plans for uh, where we would meet if the sirens went off. And I wrote about all of these films and novels that depicted post-apocalyptic landscapes. I mentioned the day after, which was the most watched television film of all time at that, that moment. Uh, and there, there's a dozen more and more others, as everyone knows now. Uh, so that, that it's a very different set of mind now yeah. than it was, you know, four decades ago. And, uh, but the, well, the warheads haven't gone away. They've, they've shrunk some of the bunkers, but uh, there's still many thousands of nuclear warheads in uh, stockpiles in at least nine countries that we know of. Uh, so that that is, to me, that is frightening in a rational sense. Absolutely. I agree with you. The question, though, is what's the benefit to, let's call it worrying, uh, and like you say, I mean, I remember the 80s and, and uh, it wasn't nearly as pointed as it was earlier in the 60s and things like that, but I mean, there were there were concerns around it at that time, too, and um, what what what's the benefit that you see in... Um, you know, making sort of plans to where you'll meet if the sirens, those kinds of things, sort of playing out the scenario. What's the benefit in that? Well, I, I frankly, I don't think there was much benefit in that. That 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 kind of thinking was desperate end game thinking. Yeah. If if we take a longer view, there there are policy levers. Uh, you know, President Obama, United States President Barack Obama, 
really made an effort. He made it a, a, a policy uh, priority to try and, and reduce the number of warheads worldwide. Uh, and that, that effort failed. He didn't uh, manage to convince other nuclear powers to go to a zero nuclear situation. But uh, there was reduction. And uh, so at, at the highest levels, prompted by concern from citizens, which is how policy always has to work in, in at least democratic nations, uh, there are some tangible gains that can be made. Uh, so anxiety can actually translate into action. And uh, anxiety on its own can, can be paralyzing, of course, mm-hmm. and that's not helpful. Uh, or it can be despairing, likewise not helpful. But when it's activist, when it um, actually puts things back on the agenda, then you have some, some uh, force where the rubber meets the road. This current situation that we find ourselves in in, in Eastern Europe right now, to, to most of the analysts I've spoken to, has brought us closer to the possibility of a, a nuclear incident than anything that's happened in the last 50, 60 years. Um, what should we be thinking about? I mean, there are so many different factors. And like you say, as, as the, the longer this continues to sort of grind out in, in what it's become, do we get to a point where suddenly the grandiose maneuver seems more likely? Well, yes, I do think so, given some of the specific circumstances. Uh, at least since 1945, any ground war, any conventional war, had the possibility, depending on who was involved, of doing the, the kind of quantum leap to a nuclear conflict. And, you know, there was a lot of discourse generated about uh, localized nuclear attacks, uh, low-level uh, bombings, not all-out assaults, to try and avoid the, the mutually assured dis- destruction, uh, end-of-the-world kind of scenario. Uh, and luckily, none of that really came into play. But uh, it, it remains a, a, an existential threat to human life. It's, it, if, if it escalated to the point it's capable of escalating to, we're talking about the end of the human race, uh, the end of the, the Earth, the world sure. as we know it. We're not, we're not just talking about, you know, many hundreds of thousands of casualties. We're talking about the end of everything. And I think that's, that's really, you know, I, I mentioned the Bertrand Russell Albert Einstein Manifesto, which, which dates from um, the earlier period, you mentioned the 60s. And you have to think, when you're reading scared words from, from two of the smartest people who've lived in the 20th century, you should pay attention. And uh, they, they were very clear that this is not an ideological argument they're making. This is an existential argument about the future of humankind. So uh, the stakes could not possibly be higher. Uh, I think we get mired in, in ideology, nationalism, and, 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 of course, the human factor. There's somebody, some group of people with their fingers on, on all those buttons. Uh, that's the most terrifying thing. Um, how did we get here? Because uh, we did a number of interviews, I'm going to say two months ago, two and a half months ago maybe, talking about this risk of a nuclear incident and, you know, how it could happen and why we need to take it seriously and why it needs to guide the way that NATO responds. And now it's kind of like, yeah, well, I mean, did we handle it properly and minimize the risk, or did we just get bored and complacent with it? That's a really good question. Uh, I think, in my view, what happened was there, there was indeed some serious consideration of, of this possibility early on in the, the Ukraine invasion, and given what we knew about Putin and what we quickly learned about him. Uh, I think what, what's different now is that, uh, well, several things. One is, this war has ground on longer than Putin wanted it to, and it's partly because 
there were all kinds of strategic and tactical errors uh, that that the Russian forces made. I think they thought it was going to be a cakewalk to take chunks of of eastern Ukraine away from the Ukrainians. They didn't anticipate the kind of street-to-street, even hand-to-hand fighting that we've witnessed, um, really gory kind of, um, you know, the, the worst kind of warfare. So this is ground on longer than Putin wanted. And I think he he's committed now. You know, there's all this talk about how to give him a soft landing, a way out. And you can have your views about that. Some people think that's capitulation. Others think it just, you know, uh, is the only option. Yeah. I don't myself know. I mean, I, I just, how can you see into the mind of someone who's not completely rational? Uh, but it seems to me that the nuclear threat is actually more pointed now than it was a few months ago because of the, the, the twinning of we're not talking about it so much and it might even be more proximate than ever because of the failure of, of the Russians right. to roll over the Ukrainians, which, by the way, I applaud. Um, some of the stories we've told about the bravery of people defending their own homes and towns is, uh, are, are quite amazing. Yeah, no question. Absolutely, they are. Um, Great conversation, Mark. I really appreciate you joining us this morning. Thank you. My pleasure. Yeah, very interesting. That's Mark Kingwell, who is a professor of philosophy at the University of Toronto, whose latest books are On Risk, The Ethics of Architecture and the Adventurer's Glossary. It's an interesting point in terms of, okay, um, it's all we talked about for a while, right? And we had fierce debates here on the air as to whether or not NATO should step in and, you know, get involved, establish a no-fly zone. Remember that big discussion about the no-fly zone and Ukraine calling for a a no-fly zone, Ukraine saying we needed this, we needed to have NATO troops and NATO saying Biden and the rest saying, you know, we can't, we just can't because if we do, that means World War III, that means Armageddon, we can't do it, we just can't go there. Um, And then we talked about that for quite some time, and now we don't hear that as much. I know there was some more saber-rattling from Putin on the weekend about possibly, you know, raising the stakes of uh, a a nuclear conflict, Um, but it's just not the same discussion point. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us. 